This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Introducing the perfect companion to The Jim Jeffries Show, which has been grabbing late night by the country, The Jim Jeffries Show Podcast. Jim Jeffries is an Australian comedian with an inquisitive and sometimes controversial take on American politics and culture. On his new podcast, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at what happened on the show, including jokes that weren't used and backstory on Jim's international field pieces. You won't want to miss it. Listen to new episodes of The Jim Jeffries Show podcast, releasing every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, enjoy the show. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. When he stepped down in January 17 as the fourth U.S. Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper had been President Obama's senior intelligence advisor for six and a half years, longer than his three predecessors combined. He led the U.S. intelligence community through a period that included the raid on Osama bin Laden, the Benghazi attacks, the leaks of Edward Snowden, and Russia's influence operation during the 2016 U.S. election campaign an event that led him to break with his instincts honed through more than five decades in the intelligence profession to share his inside experience in a new memoir titled Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Today, James Clapper joins me on the podcast to share how watching his father and tinkering with a TV set as a boy led to a career in signals intelligence. He recalls his frustrations as an intelligence briefer to General William Westmoreland during the Vietnam War, his efforts to reshape the Defense Intelligence Agency after the end of the Cold War, and being in the room when President Obama ordered the raid on Osama bin Laden. He ponders whether the Trump-Russia connection ever would have seen the light of day if President Obama hadn't asked the intelligence community to release an assessment of Russia's 2016 election interference. James Clapper remembers the now infamous intelligence briefing at Trump Tower as a perfect example of no good deed goes unpunished, and he asserts his belief that Russia's efforts actually succeeded in tipping the election to Donald Trump. Plus, he weighs in on the North Korea summit, his own war of words with the president, and says even he's starting to grow desensitized to Trump's tantrums. Coming up with former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, in just a moment. James Clapper served as the fourth United States Director of National Intelligence, the United States' top intelligence officer and President Obama's senior intelligence advisor from 2010 to 2017, beginning his career as an enlisted Marine Corps reservist in 1961. Clapper eventually became a three-star Air Force Lieutenant General and Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, retiring from uniformed service in 1995. In 2001, he returned to service, becoming the first civilian director of the National Imaging and Mapping Agency just three days after 9-11, and in 2007, he was appointed the Pentagon's top intelligence officer, 
serving as an appointee for both the Bush and Obama administrations before President Obama appointed him as the DNI. He writes about his 50 years in intelligence in his memoir titled Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. James Clapper, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks uh, very much, Ben, for having me. Intelligence is sort of a family business for you. Your father was a signals intelligence officer following World War II at a time when U.S. intelligence was just starting to really take shape. Heck, the CIA itself hadn't even been formed until after the war. And certainly signals intelligence must have been really a whole new ball game back then. What led your dad into that field? Well, it was uh, actually quite by accident. Uh, he was uh, drafted in 1944 and uh, was badgered into go to, going to officer candidate school and did, and just kind of uh, by happenstance ended up in the signal intelligence business. And you're quite right. It's, uh, uh, you know, as a practice, it actually goes back many years, but it really uh, uh, entered into its heyday during World War II. And uh, he, after the war, everyone else was demobilizing and shedding their uniform, and he was so struck by the work that he elected to stay in the Army. Before we get too far, for anyone who might not know, explain what signals intelligence is. Well, signal intelligence roughly is the uh, collection and analysis of messages in, in whatever form, normally electronic, uh, not intended <laughs> Uh, to be uh, intercepted by uh, particularly another nation state. Early on in your childhood, you kind of also inadvertently fell into signals intelligence. Tell us about the moment when you realized you wanted to go yeah. into the family business. Yeah, I was I was about 12 years old, and uh, as was customary in many military families, certainly mine, whenever we changed duty stations, when my dad got a new assignment, uh, it would typically park uh, my sister and me at uh, one of the grandparents' home, and then move up, you know, press on to the new uh, assignment and get a place to live, either on post quarters or off base housing, whatever w was available to them. So, in the summer of 1953, I was about 12 years old, you, you can do the math, and we were moving from uh, Japan, uh, Hokkaido, Japan, Hokkaido being the northernmost island of Japan, where my dad was number two in a small army signal intelligence detachment that was uh, collecting uh, against the Russians. And we were on our way to Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And so my parents parked me in my grandparents' house in Philadelphia. And a big novelty in, in the day was television. We didn't have it in, uh, in Japan at all. And so as grandparents are wont to do, uh, pretty much allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do, which included uh, staying up as late as I wanted to watch television. So one night I was staying up late and did the equivalent of surfing, although in those days you actually had to walk up to the television and turn the selector dial. And so I was doing that about 1230 in the morning and heard talking between channels four and five. And there were only four channels in the city of Philadelphia then. And I stood there and, and held the selector dial for 10 or 15 minutes and figured out that it was the Philadelphia Police Department dispatcher responding to police calls <laughs> from citizens and, and dispatching uh, police officers and cruisers uh, to various parts of the city, uh, which I found pretty interesting. So I stood there for about 10 or 15 minutes. My hand was getting tired, so I, I ran out to the kitchen, got some toothpicks, and stuck them in the selector dial so it would stick the selector <laughs> on, that one, on that frequency between... TV channels four and five. 
And I was really intrigued with what I heard. And I stayed up till about 3.30 or 4 in the morning just listening. And in those days in Philadelphia, there was a lot of uh, mayhem going on, on, on uh, especially on weekend nights. <laughs> so the next night, I got a map of the city of Philadelphia, and I started plotting out the locations of the police, where the police cars were being dispatched. And that led one thing to another. I figured out what the 10 codes were and that officers in the grade of lieutenant had their own special call sign. And I figured out how they allocated police cars to each of the police districts. And then just by listening and plotting where the police calls went, figured out what the police district boundaries were. So this went on for about uh, two or three weeks. And I was up every night sleeping all day. And so my dad and mom came back to retrieve my sister and me, time to go to the next uh our next posting. So my dad just casually asked me, well, what have you been doing? And, and I then launched into about a 20 or 25 minute discourse on the organization and operations of the Philadelphia Police Department. And even though it was you know, 65 <laughs> plus years ago, still remember the expression on my dad's face. And he looked at me and said, my God, I've raised my own replacement. So <laughs> that's when I knew I was going to be in intelligence. <laughs> so hacking grandma and grandpa's TV was the beginning of a promising signals intelligence career. <laughs> Didn't know it at the time, but apparently so. When you came of age, you enlisted in the Marines and did two tours in Vietnam. In fact, you used to give intelligence briefings to the commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, General William Westmoreland. And I think your experience with Westmoreland could perhaps serve as a metaphor for the whole U.S. strategy or lack of strategy in Vietnam. Tell us about right. that. Well, I was uh, when I went to Vietnam, uh, my first tour in Southeast Asia was in uh, 60, 1965. I'd been... Uh, in the service uh, a little over two years, uh, so I was pretty green and for some reason plucked out of anonymity to be one of two uh, lieutenants who would go downtown to Saigon from what was then Tonsonute Air Base um, each Saturday and brief General Westmoreland on the results of uh, airstrikes over uh, North Vietnam. And my uh, partner would brief a lot of statistics on the number of sorties, bombs dropped, bridges cut, roads cut, bridges sunk, secondary explosions, and, of course, the ever-popular body count. And then I would go into his private office after that, and I would present in a summary on a acetate grease pencil board uh, any signal intelligence reflections of uh, the bombing. Uh, in other words, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese were talking about the bombing, and we picked that up in uh, signal intelligence collection. Then I would brief that to uh, General Westmore. And so I was scared to death. I had never even uh, seen a four-star general other than pictures, let alone talk to one. So the first two or three or four Saturdays I d did this, it was pretty intimidating. But after time, I figured out that General Westmore, uh, was, you know, he was big on numbers, especially uh, um you know, body count, but he really didn't seem to have much uh, of a vision or strategy for how we're going to win the war. And I found that to be very disillusioning. In fact, the year in Vietnam was uh, probably the worst year of my life, both personally and professionally, and, and almost got out of the Air Force after that. Hmm. But it was uh, certainly a learning experience. The second tour, I uh, went back in 1970, and it, that was much better. 
Yeah, in your 50 years serving in the military and intelligence, you've been witness to several failures of imagination. Dick Cheney appointed you head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and you had this ambitious plan to reorganize the DIA for the post-Cold War era. But that idea didn't go over so well with some of the entrenched hawks in the DIA. Why not? Well, you're quite right, and uh, it didn't go well. And um, the basic issue was uh, we were enjoined by the Congress to reap the peace dividend. This is after the fall of the wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the the supposition was that we didn't need uh, as much military uh, and certainly not as much intelligence uh, as, as we had. So we were instructed, all, virtually all the intelligence community, but specifically my agency, to reduce by 20%. So the the structure we had for Cold, the Cold War era just uh, – we couldn't sustain it with the manpower that we would have after we cut by 20%. So we tried to reorganize uh, to accommodate that, and the big reason it failed is lack of communication with the employees, mm-hmm. uh, a lesson I tried to carry with me for the rest of my career. And during the Bush administration, you were also involved in the intelligence assessment that determined Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Once that turned out not to be the case, a lot of people portrayed that intelligence as trumped up or somehow manufactured to justify invading Iraq. Was there any pressure on the intelligence community to back up certain assumptions about Saddam's capabilities, or, or was the intelligence failure a case of an honest mistake made in good faith? Well, I think it's probably more the latter. So, uh, c- clearly, there was uh, interest, uh, no question about it, from the administration for uh, intelligence that reflected uh, Saddam's possession of weapons of mass destruction. No mm-hmm. question about that. But I don't really think, since my fingerprints were on the infamous National Intelligence Estimate, which is the apex of intelligence reporting, uh, that it, that was published in October 2002, and I was then director of uh, NEMA, as you indicated, National Imagery Mapping Agency. So I think uh, there were a number of mistakes, uh, institutional mistakes that we made, not the least of which was groupthink, and also uh, reliance on what turned out to be a very uh, unreliable uh, human intelligence source. I think the important thing here is is what we learned from that and the corrective actions that we took to build in uh, new processes to uh, attempt to, to try to preclude a recurrence uh, of that uh, episode some 15 years ago. And you've also played a role in some big intelligence successes. Uh, in particular, you were one of the key players in the intelligence assessment and discussions that informed President Obama in his decision to order the bin Laden raid. What was that decision-making process like for him? Well, I have to say that uh, it was actually a very uh, courageous uh, decision on President Obama's part to uh, de- decide to go ahead with with the raid because he was oper- – we all were operating from uh, uh, in- imperfect intelligence, less than certitude about whether uh, Osama bin Laden was actually uh, in the compound. Um, some really uh, terrific work done by – uh, intelligence team, uh, principally CIA, but importantly supported by both NSA and NGA. In fact, without those two agencies, it wouldn't have happened. So the president made a very bold, brave decision, uh, and he he did not have a unanimity among his advisors, as, as I recount in the book, about uh, whether to go ahead with a raid or not. Hmm. He decided to. 
And you were also there for the Edward Snowden leaks, which sowed the seeds of distrust for the intelligence community that perhaps in some ways has led us to the moment we're seeing right now. For you, what were the lessons learned from that experience? Well, I think the, the biggest lesson is uh, the need for transparency, which I certainly set out to try to do uh, by uh, publishing, declassifying and publishing a lot of uh, documents that had previously been classified, many of which pertain to the uh, decision-making of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, a unique institution on the planet uh, to make judgments about whether uh, intelligence uh, community assets can be used uh, in a domestic context. So the big lesson was more transparency. You know, the downside, of course, is adversaries go to school on that very same transparency. I will say, more as a more generalized comment, though, that there will always be suspicion uh, about intelligence since we can't be completely transparent. The nature of intelligence work is secret, uh, principally to provide to protect sources, methods, and tradecraft, which, if exposed, you lose. Which, by the way, happened in abundance with uh, the revelations uh, caused by Mr. Snowden. But oh, the overarching lesson learned is transparency, but there will always be suspicion and an, because of the aura of mystery about what the intelligence community does. It must be hard to counter this deep state paranoia when the IC can only defend itself with one hand tied behind its back. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, I never heard of the phrase uh, deep state until uh, the campaign of 2016. Um, you know, and, and my experience is there is no such thing as the deep state, but that uh, that image, that optic has certainly been uh, exploited uh, to the, and to the detriment of not just the intelligence community, but uh, the entire um, civil service component of the, of the government. Yeah, I don't think that we've ever seen the intelligence community the subject of such wild conspiracy theories and accusations of political motivations as we are right now. Uh, I know that you have served both under Republicans and Democrats. In your experience, do the career intelligence officers who make up the IC let their personal politics influence their work? No, I, I, you know, I'm sure there there have been exceptions to that. Uh, in fact, I know there have been, and of course, there is a uh, pretty stringent law called the Hatch Act about involvement in in things political. And we've, you know, we've had one or two cases I'm personally aware of that when I served as DNI, where uh, there were violations of the Hatch Act, which were uh, appropriately uh, dealt with. But as a general rule, 99.9% of the people in the intelligence community and the law enforcement community, for that matter, uh, leave their politics at the door and don't let uh, their political views and opinions affect their professional endeavors. And that, that's certainly mm-hmm. been uh, my experience. So, so isolated incidents, nowhere near on the level of institutional bias that's being alleged by President Trump and his supporters. No. Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, I I would note of late, though, that the uh, crosshair seems to be more focused on the law enforcement community, particularly Department of Justice and the FBI, more so now than the intelligence community. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with James Clapper when we come back in just a moment. 
Hey guys, I want to tell you about Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even body wipes. Dollar Shave Club is my one-stop go-to for all of my toiletries. And I've especially become a huge fan of their Amber and Lavender Calming Body Cleanser. It smells absolutely fantastic, and it's a great way to get your day going. But all of Dollar Shave Club's products are great and made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just 5 bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. It comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlie's, their amazing wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it out at dollarshaveclub.com slash kickass. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash kickass. When did it first dawn on you that Russia was influencing the election? When did you realize that this was something very different from the old Cold War tactics? Uh, that is a clearly a FAQ, a frequently asked question. <laughs> and there was no um, moment of revelation where the light bulb went on and uh, I realized, gee whiz, there's something different going on here. It was a gradual process uh, all uh, of our revel, uh, re all the revelation didn't occur on one day or one instant. Mm -hmm. It occurred over the, uh, particularly over the summer and into the early fall of 2016. And uh, I've seen a lot of bad stuff in my 50 plus years in intelligence, but no nothing that disturbed me as much as the realization of the magnitude and aggressiveness of what the Russians were doing to interfere in our. One of the basic pillars of our system, our, our election. And as I understand it, basically the Russian attacks had three main components. There was the social media influencing, an effort to hack voter registrations, and then there was, of course, the email hacks to the DNC and the Podesta emails. What component of this Russian effort did you find most worrisome at the time? Well, the one that had the most impact, in my view, was their... Uh, uh, aggressive use of uh, social media, mm -hmm. uh, much of which is the details of which have come out, uh, you know, since uh, since I left the government. And that is a big difference. Not to be underestimated, by the way, is the very slick, sophisticated propaganda put out by RT, formerly Russia Today, which is the right. government-sanctioned and, and financially supported uh, television network. And they went on a very aggressive campaign uh, against, particularly against Hillary Clinton and, and later for uh, Mr. Trump. So the, the Russians used, you know, the entirety of, of tools as enablers to them in the, uh, in the cyber domain, uh, from hacking to fake news to trolls to uh, fake ads, you name it. Mm -hmm. And they, they were very, very sophisticated and very astute. The Russians have a long history of interfering in our elections going back to the 60s, but never as direct and aggressive and multidimensional as what they did in, the, in 2016. 
Yeah, and I was interested in the level of detail with which they operated, almost to the degree of uh, being political operatives. They created stories specifically to motivate or suppress specific demographics. It wasn't just pro-Trump, anti-Hillary propaganda. Exactly. They had messages for everybody, whether it was Black Lives Matter, white supremacists, pro-gun control, anti-gun control, anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish they exploited all of these, uh, I think, fears of various uh, uh, tribal groupings in, in the United States. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. we're a very ripe target for that sort of uh, information operations campaign that the, the Russians so skillfully mounted. I think if anyone wants to get into the, some of the level of detail on what they did is would be to read the indictment that uh, Special Counsel Mueller put out publicly in February of this year Mm -hmm. and the indictment of the 13 Russian nationals and some corporations, notably the uh, Information uh, Internet Research Agency, Mm -hmm. which, of course, was an intelligence service tool uh, of the the Russian government. So um, very aggressive and uh, very disturbing in, in my mind. And you've gone so far as to say that you even think that the Russians successfully tipped the election to Trump. What do you base that on? Well, first I have to point out that the intelligence community assessment that we rendered, and I say we, that was CIA, NSA, FBI in my office, uh, in, in which we briefed to then-President-elect Trump on January 6, 2017, made no call whatsoever right. on the Russian meddling and whether or not it had any, any impact at all on the election. The only thing we said was we saw no evidence of tampering or meddling with voter tallies. Right. That's not to say there wasn't. We just didn't see any evidence of it. But in light of what I kn- knew the Russians did and in, in light of the evidence that's come out since— and the fact that the the election turned on about 80,000 votes in three key states and given the what the Russians did and the ma- the magnitude of it uh to me it just stretches credulity and logic to mm-hmm. think that the Russians didn't have profound impact on the election in fact per, probably turned it now that's controversial i, I acknowledge <laughs> that but it's what i would call in it's my informed opinion. Well, it's also frustrating to me when I talk to Donald Trump supporters who seem to be able to say with such certainty that it didn't actually affect the election. And truthfully, I mean, unless you're in the mind of the voters, I can't say any better than they can whether or not it influenced the election. Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, I mean, people feel very strongly on both sides of that. Uh, I happen to feel that he did. they did affect it just, mm-hmm. just because of my understanding and insight and what I saw them do when I had access to classified, pretty extensive classified information. Mm-hmm. And the very high confidence that we had in our intelligence community assessment that, that we issued on the January 6th and also put out a, a public version, of course, on classified, right. uh, that said all that. And the other thing I recount in the book is um, the striking parallelism in the thematics between what the uh, Trump campaign was doing and saying and what the Russians were doing and saying, particularly with respect to Hillary Clinton. Her, her alleged scandals and her alleged maladies, either mental or physical. It was almost as though they were uh, an echo chamber for one another. Yeah, yeah, with that and also with the statements that he was making about even weeks before the election that somehow it was going to be rigged against him. 
there seemed to be quite an echo between his campaign and what the Russians were putting out on social media. Uh, the Russians, by the way, uh, were actually anticipated, just like everybody else, that uh, Mr. Trump was not going to win the election. So they had already laid the groundwork to undermine a Clinton presidency, which they had to put the brakes on very suddenly <laughs> when, lo and behold, to everyone's surprise, uh, he won the election. And so I, I think Mr. Trump was kind of uh, prepping the battlefield, preparing the battlefield, as we'd say in yeah. the military, <laughs> uh, by uh, al alleging that the election would be rigged. Mm -hmm. And actually, that served, uh, I might add, as somewhat of an inhibi inhibition on the uh, Obama administration for being more public and more assertive about what the Russians were doing in the face of uh, the allegation that the election was going to be rigged. Yeah, President Obama refrained from taking a more forceful position against the Russian interference. Looking back, do you think that was the prudent decision politically, or, or would you have liked for him to have come out more vocally? I was an advocate for a uh, more vocal, um, uh, more robust uh, public messaging about it and, and from the president personally. But you have to remember what the contemporary environment was at the time. And so for one, we didn't, the administration, I think, I, I certainly was concerned about uh, hyping, amplifying what the Russians were doing into mm -hmm. something greater than it was. And as well, uh, the, the president was, I think, personally concerned that he not be seen as putting his hand on the scale in, in favor of one candidate to the disfavor of another against the backdrop of uh, Trump's allegation about the election would be rigged. Mm -hmm. Now, President Trump has accused this of being a witch hunt and said that the investigation and the intelligence assessment of which you were a part was all built around the Steele dossier, which he has tried to discredit. Was the Steele dossier actually the principal source for the intelligence assessment, or was there a lot more to it? The, the dossier was not used as a source for okay. the intelligence community assessment. So, the high confidence findings that uh, appeared in that intelligence community assessment, and by the way, the findings in the unclassified version that was made public is exactly this, worded the same as the higher classified version. Mm -hmm. The dossier was not used in that at all because we could not corroborate the second and third order uh, sources that Mr. Steele used to compile the 17 memos that comprised uh, the dossier. So we did not use it. Mm -hmm. We briefed president-elect Trump on it, uh, mainly because we just wanted him to know it was out there. It was widely distributed. We understood uh, around the, in the media, and at least two members of Congress had access to the dossier. So we felt a duty to warn him that it was out there. Jim Comey, then the director of the FBI, was particularly concerned about the counterintelligence implications. You know, the Russians are famous for what they call Kompromat, which is their right. acronym for compromising material, whether it's real or contrived. So Jim felt he should at least warn the president about this should uh, the, the Russians attempt to leverage uh, the Kompromat. And that's not to, not to comment one way or the other on the veracity of particularly the salacious material that was included <laughs> in the dossier. Other parts of it, however, were corroborated in our uh, intelligence community assessment, but that was derived from separate sources in which we knew and had high confidence in. Okay. You've been in this business for a long time. 
from your knowledge of the KGB and then the FSB's compromise best practices, would someone like a Donald Trump be the kind of person they would want to target typically? They want to target anybody that has potential uh, influence, uh, is seen as a powerful figure, a prominent figure. Uh, that's their, it's almost in their genes going mm-hmm. back to the Soviet era. So they are definitely interested in influence, in co-opting, gaining access. Uh, this is the nature of uh, the way that the Russian government mm-hmm. operates. And particularly given his impulsive behavior and his habit of kind of chasing his worst instincts, would that seem like the type of personality that they usually seek out? Or that seems well, ripe for they, a compromise yeah, operation? They would. Uh, they would do that, and they would— figure out how to uh, g- gain that influence, that access, and that leverage uh, based on uh, the kind of uh, personality, uh, kind of person they assess the target is. And uh, so I'm sure that, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was on their scope from, from probably going back many years, uh, certainly yeah. uh, as early as 2013 anyway, when he went there for the uh, Miss Universe contest. Does anything particularly stand out to you from Special Counsel Mueller's investigation, from what he's released publicly so far? I guess one observation I always make uh, is that uh, he knows a lot more than we do at any given time. Mm -hmm. So the investigation is way ahead of what's out there. Uh, And the other thing is that it appears to me that uh, Mr. Mueller is conducting this investigation as I knew him Uh, when he was director of the FBI, very thorough and methodical. When you put out the intelligence assessment during the election, I guess that was, what, a few weeks before the election, it didn't seem to get very much attention. Why wasn't that a bigger story, do you suppose? Well, (laughs) when we, we had a lot of debating about what, whether to say something and and when. Mm -hmm. And uh, Secretary of Homeland Security then, uh, Jay Johnson, and I felt particularly strongly that uh, we f- we thought that we had the administration had an obligation to uh, inform the American public what the Russians were doing, and to do so before the election. So we jointly p- issued a statement, which was coordinated throughout the interagency process, and we issued a statement which was pretty forthright about what the Russians were doing, and that and that the direction for this was coming from the highest levels of the Russian government. That statement was put issued on the 7th of October, which unfortunately was the same day that the uh, Access Hollywood audio tape came right. out about uh, then can, uh, candidate Trump's um, uh, locker room talk, and was also the same day as the John Podesta emails, which had been hacked, were dumped. So our joint statement, as important as it was, kind of got lost in all that and did not get the attention that it uh, it should have. Do you wonder what might have happened if President Obama hadn't asked you to put together that intelligence assessment and put it out publicly? It's possible that if he hadn't done that, that none of this would have ever seen the light of day and would have been buried forever under President Donald Trump. That's a great question. And I've often wondered about that because I'm not sure that on our own, we in the intelligence community would have put together that assessment and made it public. And President Obama, to his credit, uh, wanted it done to, to have all of the information compiled in one document, and the highly classified version pretty much did that. 
that he could hand off to the next administration and and to the Congress and, for that matter, to the public. And he, so when he tasked us to do that in early December of 16, he, and he specifically stipulated he wanted it done before the end of his administration, and he wanted an unclassified version put out. And your, your question's a good one. I don't know uh, what course history would have taken had, had he not ordered that up and had we not done it because that really was the catalyst for subsequent events, notably uh, the investigation of, the sp- of Special Counsel Mueller. And you mentioned a moment ago the Trump Tower meeting when you and James Comey and John Brennan met with him and briefed him on the intelligence assessment. You were there for the portion of the meeting that basically covered Russian interference, not the Steele dossier, right? That's correct. You described that meeting, I think, as no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, uh, how did he react? Well, that, I was referring uh, specifically to uh, the private briefing one on, on a one-on-one okay. one, one on one <laughs> basis because we want to be as discreet about it as we possibly could. And again, our purpose was simply to warn him of its existence. And of course, uh, we've since been uh, widely uh, criticized, excoriated for, for that. But that... And so that's that was the reference to, mm. to no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> were there things that you can talk about, any measures that were taken in real time during 2016 to defend us against Russian interference, perhaps stuff that you can now talk about publicly? Well, the main thing, uh, and again, it's not, no big secret, was uh, to try to uh, share the information that we had uh, with uh, uh, state election officials. Mm-hmm. And this was done primarily by uh, Department of Homeland Security and, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And in the uh, report that we put out, the, the version we sent to the Hill, to each member of Congress, both senators and representatives, we also included uh, an, uh, an attachment, uh, an annex to that, which was uh, best uh, cybersecurity practices recommendations from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Department of Homeland Security, for the benefit of state and local election officials. So, and there was a lot of uh, in, informal liaison, particularly when we saw the Russians. What I'll, I will, my characterization, reconnoiter voter registration rolls uh, initially in some twenty-one states, and got up to at least thirty-nine. I suspect the Russians attempted to penetrate all fifty state level uh, voter registration rolls and whatever infor- other information they could they could gather. We never saw them inf- exfiltrate the information or manipulate it. I suspect they were there they were doing that to gather information for the future. And I also believe that uh, the actions we did take could well have inhibited the Russians from doing something more than beyond what we saw them do. Well, before we go, I do want to get your impressions of the much ballyhooed summit with Kim Jong-un. You've spent some time in that region. What were you looking for from that meeting and were you satisfied? Well, first of all, I was supportive of uh, President Trump accepting Kim Jong-un's invitation for a summit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I followed the peninsula ever since I served there in the mid-80s as the director of intelligence for U.S. Forces Korea. And, of course, when I got to visit North Korea in uh, November 14 to bring out two of our citizens who'd been incarcerated under hard labor conditions, it really struck me that the both the North Koreans and we are, were stuck on our respective narratives. 
And the only way those narratives could be changed is, is if the bigger partner, meaning the United States, changed the narrative. And to the president's credit, he did that. What distressed me, though, was I don't think I think he squandered the leverage he had simply by agreeing to meet with mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un. And I think he could have extracted more uh, specific agreement from them than he did. And he certainly didn't have to volunteer to give up so-called war games, which I, I believe was a mistake. Mm -hmm. President Trump has portrayed those war games as just a waste of money and not productive. Do those serve a real purpose well, still in your mind? Absolutely. They, he characterized them as, as quote, very pro provocative, using the same phraseology that the North Koreans use. <laughs> and the, those exercises have been going on for decades. And they uh, always posit a, an invasion by North Korea into South Korea and South Korea and the U.S. forces then repulsing a, an invasion. The North Koreans understand exactly the nature of, of, the, of those exercises. And the reason they're important is that the U.S. forces who serve in, in Korea are there, most of them there for a one-year tour. Leader, leadership, those in leadership positions, like when I was there, stay for two. But the fact is, every year you have huge turnover among the American troops. So in, in the interest of readiness, combat readiness, you, you must do those war games. And mm -hmm. not only on a joint basis for the United States forces, but on a combined basis with the forces of the Republic uh, of Korea. Mm -hmm. And yes, readiness and preparation is not cheap. I would point out, though, that the, the Republic of Korea already pays the shares the burden. Almost, uh, for, almost half of the expense of our being there is borne by uh, the Republic of Korea. Before we go, I did want to ask you about this sort of battle of words between you and the president. Do you take offense to the situation where you have a man who didn't serve in Vietnam, who got a deferment attacking you, someone who did serve, and, and in fact uh, worked very hard to try and get to serve because initially you were having a hard time even getting into the Marines because of, right. uh, the, your, I think it was your vision, right? Exactly. Uh, uh, Marines were not quite as demanding as the other services about, uh, <laughs> about vision. So uh, they let me enlist, and uh, I, I'm so thankful they did. Well, uh, I was asked once uh, in another interview that uh, didn't it bother me whenever the president uh, put out a, a tweet where he was uh, critical of me or said bad things about me. And, and I said, no. And I said, that in itself is, is a sad commentary. Hmm. Um, it just, again, typical of uh, this president to single out private citizens uh, whenever uh, they don't uh, – uh, support him. Hmm. And uh, that's, to me, is not not in accordance with the values and standards of this, this country that I spent, you know, 50 years defending. So even you find yourself at times starting to get desensitized to it, huh? Exactly. I, unfortunately, uh, the tweets, the steady stream of tweets, and, you know, by one count, there have been thousands of uh, distortions, inaccuracies, or flat-out lies that are uh, conveyed in these tweets. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I think more and more people in this country are, are getting jaded to it and don't take them uh, seriously. Well, General Clapper, I certainly thank you for your service and thank you for this book. Again, it's called Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. James Clapper, thanks so much for talking with me. 
Oh, Ben, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to James Clapper for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence, on Amazon or Audible. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.